Due to the subject matter of this episode of Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke, listener discretion is advised. Hello there. It's your fellow revolutionary. And these are Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. Go to talesoftherevolution.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or anywhere you find podcasts. All the episodes are also available on YouTube. So search for Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke on YouTube. And follow me on social media. Facebook.com slash Tales of the Revolution. Instagram at Real Jason Vreeke. Twitter at Jason Vreeke. And I know my last name is a little tricky, so it's V as in victory, R-E-E-K-E. We're calling today's episode, The Struggle is Real. You know, we hear a lot about struggling. Many struggle to make ends meet financially. An uncertain economy can only feed these struggles. How are we going to pay our rent? Where are we going to get food? I know of many people who don't struggle financially, but they do struggle. Struggles may come in the form of a dysfunctional family. Perhaps a broken home causes members to struggle. Why is dad not here? Why won't he come to see me? Does he even care? Or it could be a situation where a wife or a mother has decided she doesn't want to be married anymore or take care of her children. See episode six, A Smiley for Your Troubles. I know what it's like to have a family member struggle with drugs. This is something that is very real to me. I know what it looks like when a person is dominated by an addiction to a substance. I've seen many lives that by most standards would be considered good fall apart. I remember the story a friend told me many years ago. He and I were both enrolled in the school of ministry, engaged in biblical studies, and studying pastoral ministry. We'll call this friend of mine, Mike. That's not his name, but it doesn't matter. He told me how he had once been a successful software designer. He was married, had a child, and life was good. But for some reason, the lure of intravenous drugs was too strong for him to resist. Soon, the only thing he cared about was getting a hit. It became the master passion of his life, his God, with a little g. It wasn't long before he lost his family. His wife left him and took their daughter with her. Do you blame her? He ended up living on the streets, homeless and completely enslaved. I remember when he told me of a specific time living on the streets, alone, scared, and starving and how he had become overjoyed when he found some leftover Chinese food in a trash can. He said it lit up his taste buds and how it had left his mind that it was actually garbage. He recounted this to me many years later, having undergone rehab and a true salvation experience with Jesus. I remember he showed me a picture of his little daughter. He said that he had tried to make contact with his ex-wife so that he could see his little girl, but he got no responses. This was despite the fact that he had been clean and sober for years and now lived for God. He had even gone overseas as a missionary of Christ. But that missionary work proved too much for him. His addiction had taken its toll on his body, 
and he passed away at the young age of 37. He never did get a chance to see his daughter ever again. So why did I tell you this sad story? Why would I talk to you about this man who, in many ways, threw his life away and never saw his daughter again? It's simple. The struggle is real. I don't tell these stories to make people feel warm and fuzzy. That's not how life is. I don't seek out guest storytellers who have feel-good, heartwarming stories that you might find in a beautifully illustrated book displayed in the window of a greeting card store. These tales of the revolution are real. But you know who else is real? Jesus of Nazareth is real. Life is hard. What you want and what you get are often vastly different. Mike's daughter did not ask for her dad to become enslaved by heroin and become homeless. Mike's ex-wife did not take particular joy in watching her husband choose the love of a needle over the love of a family. Do miracles happen? Yes. Mike is now walking the streets of gold or standing by the river that flows through the city of God. That's a miracle. I don't know whatever happened to the family that Mike left behind. I never met them. I do know a few things about them. They've dealt with some serious pain in life. They've dealt with abandonment. Again, I've not met them, but I have a feeling they need a miracle as well. And I'm sure that you know people who have struggled in this life. These are people we need to pray for. These are people we need to come alongside and share with them the love of God. And you might be one of these people. You may need God's love today. In fact, I know you do. But let me tell you something. Don't do it alone. Seek out the ministry of a local church. And if you don't know Jesus, go to talesoftherevolution.com and click Know Jesus. The struggle is real, and the episode continues. My guest storyteller knows all about struggling. In fact, Joe Dallas deals with struggles that many do not want to talk about. His ministry in sexual addiction recovery is nationally recognized. Hank Hanegraaff, host of the Bible Answer Man, says this of Joe Dallas. No one understands the subject of sexual purity better than Joe Dallas. It is a touchy subject and often politically charged topic. I had the opportunity to get Joe on the phone to share his own personal story and journey that has led him to his ministry. Let's allow Joe to tell the rest of his story. I have a story similar to millions of other people's stories, really, in that I know what it's like to have a long, ongoing struggle against something you didn't ask for, something you know God prohibits you giving into, but also something that has delivered a tremendous amount of impact or meaning or even some sense of intimacy, and so it's very compelling. And I think people can say that about sexual relationships that are outside God's will. They can say it about alcohol. They can say it about violence or about gambling or about any number of other things. Uh, because I do think 
as humans, we are created with the capacity to need and to crave. And those are two different things. I've craved a lot of things I haven't really needed. And as a result, I haven't really attended to my needs the way I should have. In my case, the craving was for intimacy with men. I was, as a boy, routinely molested from the time I was about eight until I was 10 or 11. And while I certainly don't think molestation always causes homosexuality, and my gosh, I've known plenty of gay men who were never violated in any way. I know one thing molestation always does. It sets up confusion. It leaves you wondering what your worth is. It sends you false messages about intimacy and about your personal boundaries as a human. It sends you false images about what sex is meant to be. And all of those false lessons largely influenced my early decisions. One thing now at the age of 62, I'm seeing more and more clearly is that the events of my life have not shaped me as much as my decisions have shaped me. The early molestation was a terrible thing. It's an evil thing an abhorrent thing but I still made decisions as a boy as to how I would respond to that and I chose to keep going back to that dark place of erotic behavior the men who molested me introduced me to pornography I chose to continue using pornography for years afterwards so I developed the habit of going to a liquor store and swiping a few Playboy magazines and hiding them under my t-shirt, then leaving the store. And that developed a pattern of going to a private place where I could indulge all my sexual fantasies alone in a pseudo-perfect world where all the people loved me just the way I wanted to be loved, where the fantasy could be exactly as I wanted it to be. And unfortunately, I began pursuing that fantasy world more and more at the expense of pursuing the real world around me. I became a loner, and I found my primary satisfaction in solitude and sexual fantasy with pornography. I began pushing the boundaries by the time I got to junior high and did start having sexual relations with girls very early uh, when I was uh, 11, 12, 13. And then by the time I was in high school, I also began having sexual relations with adult men through what was at that time the only gay dating service available. And since this was back in 1971, my goodness, homosexuality was still very taboo gay people lesbian people generally were not coming out of the closet and uh, so it was a very shadowy world at that time so in the middle of all that promiscuity i met a very beautiful classmate who invited me to a backwards dance we had a terrific time i told her i'd love to see her again and she said uh that sounds great i'd like to take you to church with me which absolutely baffled me because I didn't know a lot about church, but 
I did figure it was not a place cool people went. I figured if you went to church, you were old or you were ugly or you were both, but I certainly didn't think a beautiful girl like her would go to church. So I said yes, and that was in the spring of 1971. She took me for my first visit to Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And that was the first time I ever heard the gospel preached very plainly. And it is impossible, literally, to adequately describe what it was like in those days at Calvary Chapel. The little chapel I went to that day was jam-packed. People were sitting on the floor. The excitement was palpable. The love was tangible. As a non-believer, I felt the power in there. And I was flabbergasted. I was flabbergasted at the passion of the worship and the vibrancy of the people, the testimonials I heard that day, and then Chuck Smith's preaching, which began to really pierce my soul. I went through about three months of intense conviction as on the one hand, I felt drawn to Calvary. I kept going back with this young lady week after week, usually a few times a week to hear Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee and Don McClure and Greg Laurie. But I also was wrestling because I knew that if I said yes to Jesus, there were claims he would make on me. And this, I think, has been a theme in my life, the conflict between the spiritual and the sexual. And I think that's a very common theme among people, especially among men. Spiritual hunger versus sexual craving. And I knew that I could indeed be received by Jesus. I could believe on him. I could be forgiven for my sins. I could be established in the book of life. But I also knew there would be a requirement. I had heard enough preaching to know by then that there was a cross to take up. And mine would include crucifying my sexual behavior and my desire for that. I wrestled with that until... I realized it was too exhausting to keep wrestling with God and that whatever pleasure I'd been receiving would not be worth sacrificing eternity for. So when I was 16, I was born again. I mistakenly thought, as I think a lot of believers do, that becoming a Christian would permanently eradicate any sexual temptations I had. And I thought that largely because of a misunderstanding of what it means to be a new creature in Christ. But I also thought it because in those days, I never did hear anyone talk about sexual temptations. Christians would talk about temptations to use drugs or to beat somebody up or even to overeat. But I rarely recall anybody saying, I'm struggling with lust. I need to overcome practices like masturbation or the use of pornography or even fornication. We didn't talk about those things back then. And I, I kind of miss the modesty of those days. I really do. I think we talk about things in mixed company we shouldn't. But I do think we need to be open about the fact that believers live in an ongoing struggle between the flesh and the spirit. The fleshly desires may vary from believer to believer, but the struggle is universal. And I think that Pauline theology teaches us that we do, as new creatures, still retain an old nature, which is at odds 
with the new man, the new woman Christ has created. And part of our responsibility in this life as stewards of our bodies and our lives is to engage in that struggle by continuing to resist carnal desires and on the one hand not to beat ourselves up over having them to recognize that they are there but not to ever use that as an excuse to give in to them. Well, I wasn't thinking that way back then. I thought if I pray hard enough, I will never again have a sexual temptation. I'll never again have a wayward sexual fantasy. And that certainly didn't play out. I reached a point where I became exhausted, waiting for that complete deliverance, that point where I would be such a spiritual man, I could never be tempted by something as vile as any form of fornication. And I successfully, of course, abstained from any form of overt sexual sin for many years until I finally said, I'm sick of this struggle. I'm sick of the secrecy. I'm sick of saying no to myself. I hereby give myself permission to use porn. Now, let me jump ahead a little by explaining. I've had the honor since 1987 of working as a pastoral counselor with Christian men who have got caught up in the use of pornography or in homosexuality or in fornication or in adulterous relationships. And one thing I stress to all the men I work with is no matter what led up to the temptation, we each gave ourselves permission to give into it. And I think that's an important point because it marks a turning point in many of our lives when we harden our hearts to the point of saying, I know this is wrong, but I give myself permission to do it anyway. In that moment, something happens between us and God, a hardening of our heart towards Him, a darkening of our minds happens, and usually a growing dependency on whatever behavior we gave ourselves permission to indulge in happens as well. And just as Paul said, a little leaven never just stays that way, does it? It leavens the whole lump. It was not long after I gave myself permission to use porn that I began uh, entering into illicit relationships. In fact, I had uh, an affair with a woman who was married, which culminated in uh, a pregnancy and an abortion. And then eventually I decided to give in to whatever I felt and I began going to gay bars. So by the fall of 1978, I was regularly seeing a man who owned a gay bar, regularly uh, getting drunk, regularly living basically a crazy lifestyle of being out till all hours, then working, then being out till all hours. And I reached a point where I felt that uh, I was living an excessive lifestyle and I wanted to reform that, but I wasn't ready to give homosexuality up. I was a backslidden Christian. I wanted to remain a Christian, but I didn't want to abandon sexual sin. And that was when I ran into somebody who told me about a church I could go to where a choice like that didn't have to be made, where you could be openly gay and openly Christian. Now, this was in 1978. I was a born-again believer who wrestled with homosexual desires. And I was presented with a reinterpretation of the Bible. That was rather rare back then. You didn't hear about it much. 
today, good grief, in 2017, this is a very common story, which is why I think it needs to be talked about more often. Because when you have a long-standing struggle, and that is to say there's a long-standing temptation or inclination in your life, you see clearly in Scripture that God prohibits you giving into it, but the temptation doesn't go away. You look for some solution to that other than the daily plodding along of mortifying the flesh, walking in the Spirit, and moving ahead, which is part and parcel of Christian living. But when you look for an easier way out, then you can be much more vulnerable to doctrinal error. When I first heard the pro-gay interpretation of the Bible that fall, it sounded very flimsy. It was, I thought, a very sloppy reworking of very clear verses in Leviticus and Romans and 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. But it also sounded like an answer. I thought, well, if this is true, that's an answer to prayer. I don't have to struggle with this anymore. I can have my relationship with God and I can be openly gay and I can engage in homosexuality. Praise God, sounds great. And so I jumped whole hog into not only membership of that church, but eventually going on staff with that church. And for years, I preached from that pulpit as a staff member and taught Bible studies, basically promoting the idea that gay and Christian were two words that were compatible. In fact, I became enough of an activist that I was also regularly going to universities and community colleges in the area and debating with Christians about the issue and guest speaking at human sexuality and psychology and sociology classes. And believe me, at that time, there was a very open hostility towards homosexuals. So it was a very different college environment than what we have today. But every prodigal at some point has to ask himself or herself, is this really a better life than what I had? And by early 1984, I began asking myself that question. I think the Holy Spirit's conviction became relentless. I think I got tired of trying to convince myself I was doing the right thing. The more I looked at the Bible, the harder it was to keep justifying what I was doing. And finally, God graciously, in early 1984, brought me to repentance. Now, I thought I was one in about three million. I thought my story was very rare. What I began to learn in the years following, as I went to school to become a Christian counselor, I hoped to counsel people who had drug or alcohol problems. I never dreamed I would counsel people who had this problem because I thought it was very rare for any Christian to have homosexual temptations. I even thought it was rare for a Christian to have sexual temptations of any sort. But as I began my program, I learned that there were in fact many people within the body of Christ who secretly struggled with sexual passions they did not want to have, but had. Some of them were giving into those temptations some of them weren't, but all of them were scared. And to this day, I am convinced that there are in our churches many people who are scared to ever admit the temptations they are dealing with. I do not think it's godly or healthy 
to be exhibitionistic about our sinful temptations. I certainly don't want the church to turn into a Jerry Springer show where we're all just exhibiting all these different passions and conflicts we have. But I do strongly believe the church must be a place of safety where we can find someone to confess our sinful temptations to, to have accountability, to have encouragement, and to know that our place in the body of Christ is secure because whatever our sinful tendency may be, that alone should never exempt us from fellowship or even leadership. The question is not what sort of sinful temptations does the person have, but how faithful is the person being in stewarding those temptations. I've worked with many men, for example, who have become very dependent on the use of pornography. And that is probably one of the commonest secret sins going on in the church today. And I find on the one hand, we are getting very casual about porn because it is so common. On the other hand, we're still ashamed to admit that we have a temptation to look at unclean material. And so as a result, we have this secrecy keeping the problem hidden when it really needs to be brought into the light. So I am finding that when men and women are willing to confess openly and renounce what they know God calls them to renounce, they do take a leap of faith because then they have to believe that God will give them the power to say no to those temptations in the future. And believe me, that alone for a lot of people is quite a leap of faith because so many people have become very dependent on their sexual sin, almost the way one becomes dependent on a drug or on alcohol. So it really feels a bit like Peter walking on the water, daring to believe that he can, but there also will need to be a willingness to let go of the belief that having a sexual temptation somehow makes you a second-rate Christian. A carnal Christian, in my opinion, is one who lives after the flesh and yields to the flesh and even makes excuses for that yielding. But a spiritual woman, a spiritual man, I expect that person to have temptations of all kinds. And what to me determines real spirituality is not the presence or absence of our temptations, but rather the faithfulness we exercise in resisting those temptations. And yet I also find that we walk in a newness of life which grants us tremendous power. When I repented of homosexuality in 1984, I knew I had to immediately relocate to another county. I had to get away from all of the old triggers and even most of the old friendships and relationships I'd developed in the gay community. I needed to reestablish myself in the Bible-believing church. I needed good Christian counseling. I needed fellowship and I needed relationship. When I applied myself to meeting all those needs, I did find that God was not only relieving me from the power of temptations towards my old way of relating, but he opened up to me the audacity to believe 
that he could provide me with a better way, which he did when about a year later I met and I fell in love with a lovely young woman who has been my wife now for 29 and a half years and mother of my two sons and also a partner in a lot of the ministry work I do. I do not believe in wrapping up our testimonies with a bow like the ending of a movie of the week because I don't think it plays out that way. Life is largely about struggle. I don't live struggling overtly against homosexuality, although I I would never say that I could never be tempted towards that again. That wouldn't be true. Under different circumstances, I think I could be. And for obvious reasons, I would avoid those kinds of circumstances. But I still have countless temptations of every sort that I have to wrestle with on a daily basis. And I no longer judge my own spirituality by the presence of those temptations or the absence of those temptations, but by how willing I am to say no to them and experience the sanctifying work of God, showing me year by year new areas of my life he wants to reform and refine. And I think that in this life is what Christian living is about until we die or until Christ comes. We are transformed from glory to glory. However, when the temptation or sin we've been involved with also has political and social ramifications, we really do feel a burden. I know I do. I'm sure women who've had abortions feel a burden over the burgeoning abortion industry. I'm sure people who used to deal drugs feel a burden over the epidemic of drug addiction in America. I feel a burden about the ongoing controversy between Bible-believing Christians and the gay rights movement. And that is a conflict which is only going to grow. So I think today we have the challenge to recognize that my story is a common one. And therefore we have to look at the many people in our churches who wrestle with this type of sinful tendency and say to them, this is a safe place for you to admit that struggle. We will mentor you through that struggle. We will be here for you. We're not going to just tell you homosexuality is wrong and leave you with that. We will also walk with you as you strive to take up your own cross, put your hand to the plow, and walk in the Spirit, as we all have to do. And then I think we will need to take up the challenge of speaking directly to the culture that there is a better way. The gay rights movement has achieved so much of what it wanted, and yet HIV is still spreading among gay men. Many of the problems like alcoholism, suicide, and drug addiction are still there, even though so much of what they wanted has been achieved. I think many of them are going to start asking themselves, is this really what I was created for? Is this really what my life should be about? And as they begin asking those questions, they will probably reconsider what Christianity has to offer and what it has to say. My hope, my real prayer, is that when they begin asking those questions, the body of Christ in modern America will be ready to step in with both the right answers and the love 
supporting those answers and supporting the people who ask. Really, where we've been lacking in the churches, we're telling homosexuals it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. But when they come to us, good grief, they too often feel like they're they're the lepers in the congregation. And so I, I certainly don't want the church to back down. A lot of churches are caving on this. It's abominable. But, but really, many churches are getting very weak on this issue, and they shouldn't. So I don't think the answer is telling a gay couple who comes to our church, oh, yeah, we think that's fine. Of course not. We welcome everybody to come to our church, but we can't say from the pulpit we approve of things that the Bible condemns. But by the same token, there's no way to disciple people if if they can't be honest about what they need to be discipled about. Thank you, Joe Dallas. Learn more about him and his ministry at joedallas.com. And check out his new book, Speaking of Homosexuality. It's available right now on Amazon.com and pretty much anywhere else you buy books. Joe has also written many other books on the topic of sexual purity that can help you or someone you care about who struggles in this area. Look for some of his other titles, which include The Game Plan, A Strong Delusion, and Desires in Conflict. I'll include links in the show notes. Well, there's the music, and you know what that means. Another episode of Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke has come to an end. But let me tell you, all is not lost. Wipe the tears from your eyes and check out talesoftherevolution.com. There you can download any or all of the episodes of the show. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. Remember to enter your email at the bottom of the page so you can get email updates. You will also get exclusive access to downloads you won't get anywhere else. Again, talesoftherevolution.com. Big thanks to Joe Dallas once again. Check out joedallas.com. And thank you for listening. This episode is entitled, The Struggle is Real. And don't forget, even though the struggle is real, Jesus is real. Tell somebody about him as you live the revolution.